Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. Now, on with the show. Thank you all to the NSI team uh, for joining us today um, and to all of our audience members. Uh, I'm pleased to have with us today uh, Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins. Ambassador Jenkins is a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and the president of Global Connections Empowering Global Change, LLC, where she works with academic institutions on issues of global health, infectious disease, and defense innovation. Ambassador Jenkins is also the founder and president of Women of Color Advancing Peace, Security, and Conflict Transformation, which is a nonprofit organization at the forefront of some of the issues confronting our society today. From 2009 to 2017, Ambassador Jenkins was served at the Department of State, where she was coordinator for threat reduction programs in the Bureau of International Security and Nonproliferation. In that role, Ambassador Jenkins coordinated the State Department's programs and activities to prevent weapons of mass destruction and terrorism. She also served as the U.S. representative to the 30-nation G7 Global Partnership against the spread of weapons and materials of mass destruction, and served as the State Department's lead for national security summits that took place from 2010 to 2016. She's also a leading official in the, U in the launch and implementation of the Global Health Security Agenda. Ambassador Jenkins has served in a variety of roles, uh, including at the Ford Foundation, at the National, National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States, the 9-11 Commission, and as general counsel to the U.S. Commission to assess the organization of the federal government to combat the proliferation of WMD. So we're glad to have you here, Ambassador Jenkins. Uh, it's exciting for you to be here with us today. Uh, we've got a great crowd of uh, folks from our advisory board, our fellows, and some members of the public. Um, and so I want to, you know, jump right in. And, you know, you've had a long and storied career. I mean, you've got degrees from Amherst and SUNY Albany, Albany Law School, and LOM from Georgetown to PhD from UVA. I mean, more degrees than I can count. Um, you served as a PMF at DOD, a lawyer and consultant to many commissions, including the 9-11 Commission. I mean, again, professor, a professor at, you know, more institutions of higher education than, than even you've had you have degrees from. I mean, it, it is amazing. Uh, tell us how, how did you get here? How did you end up becoming a leader when it comes to, Nonproliferation, health, uh, global health issues, um, and and now your new role as as the head of WCAPS. Tell us about how where where did all this come from? <laughs> well, first of all, thank you for inviting me here today and allowing me to share this time with you. I really do appreciate it, and uh, welcome to everyone who uh, wanted to join today and 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 chat with me. Um, I don't. Where did it all come from? Um, you know, it's, it's hard to say because when I, I'm from New York, I'm from the Bronx, and growing, growing up there, I, didn't, I certainly didn't have all this in mind. Um, I knew I wanted to work for the federal government. I mean, that's right. the one thing I knew. And so I went through city government in New York, and I went upstate to Albany so I could work in the state government uh, offices. And uh, fortunately, landed down here in, uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. And uh, I was very fortunate to get involved in the work that I do just by being a presidential management fellow at the Office of Secretary of Defense, where I was as a lawyer in the right. international law section. And uh, that's when I got exposed to the issue of weapons of mass destruction. And that started down a path where I've been doing that work ever since uh, being a PMF and, uh, and, re and got into the issue of global health later on when I was working as an ambassador at the State Department uh, under right. the Obama administration. And we started to look at the issue of global health and infectious disease uh, back in 2013. Yeah. Um, so really it started with my coming down to DC, being a PMF, one thing led to another. 
and uh, just being involved in the issues of weapons of mass destruction and being involved in these different issues of uh, terrorism and global health. Yeah. Now, investors, you grew up in the Bronx, right? Uh, we know that diversity is a huge issue in national security, right? Um, I'm interested to know sort of what got you interested in these topics. First of all, I grew up in the Bronx and want to work for the federal government. But then how, how has it been? And I know we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about the, both about proliferation and Russia and China and North Korea. Uh, we're also going to talk about diversity uh, later on in the program. But I'm interested to know what, what was your experience sort of growing up and thinking about doing this? And then actually when you got into the field, you were a PMF at DOD and you're, you're rising up. Did you experience challenges? Did you have mentors? And if you had mentors, they looked like you. Like, what would, talk to us about that for a moment. Um, well, growing up in New York uh, City in the Bronx, I mean, it was an area where it was, I was growing up with people who looked like me. <laughs> um, and so, and then I went to a private high school in New York, but still in New York City, where I was one of few people who looked like me. Right. Um, and that's pretty much been uh, the same for most of my career. And so um, having been in those spaces and becoming accustomed um, to being one of few women or people of color and learning how to navigate that field and that's, that situation early on, I think was helpful later on in my career. Um, and I use the word navigate because that pretty much is very much learning how to navigate the different cultures, the different uh, presumptions about what I know and what I don't know, um, you know, and learning how to deal with that and also, you know, working now to help others uh, also learn how to adjust to that. Yeah. Um, and I had mentors. I mean, actually, because when I got into this field in the early 90s, um, there certainly were not many people of color in weapons of mass destruction. There still is not. Right. Um, one of the reasons why I established the organization to help bring in more people of color into the fields of foreign policy and national security. Um, but I did have a really, I had a couple of amazing mentors who were white men who yeah. were really good who never, um, who knew the field when I wanted to get into it. Uh, I didn't really think about how, how populated the field is in terms of people of color when I got into it. All I know is I right. wanted to do it. This is exciting, I wanna get into this. And I had mentors who never made me feel like I couldn't do it. They never said, well, Bonnie, you know, you're going into a field where there aren't a lot of people like you. I never right. really thought about it, they never brought it up. It was only after I got into it, I was like, wow, there are that many people like me. But um, it really does show the value of having mentors, whether they're yeah. of color or not, um, in my case, who made me understand that I could do the work. And there's no reason why I should think I couldn't do it. And having that yeah. kind of incentive um, out there from the very beginning, I think was a very positive experience. Yeah. So you use the term navigate on one side and, and sort of about assumptions that people might have or what you do know and don't know. Um, and then, and then this idea of having mentors, you said, actually, you can do these things and there's no question that you, you have the knowledge and the skill set and you should do these things. Tell us about that first part, right? Tell us about what, what do you mean about presumptions that people have about what you know and don't know? Um, well, I think that, you know, when you're in a, a situation where you're the different person or you're a person that's in, um, not in a predominant culture or predominant situation, there are, there are, you know, there's racist views out there. There's. Uh, views about that are instilled from culture, from um, American culture, about what people of black and brown can do, what women can do. So when you're in, particularly in you're in a space where you're the only one, I think that kind of attitude or feeling uh, is emboldened because there aren't a lot of people to challenge it. Right. So when you're a, a, a different person, you automatically challenge that presumption um, just because you're there. 
but there's still, I think, uh, it, there's a comfort, I think, in the predominant culture to still feel like what we've been taught all of our lives is still cool. This is the way it is. Um, and so you have to figure out how to navigate that and to, um, and how to deal with those kind of presumptions and stereotypes that exist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to come back to this issue later on uh, and talk more about it because obviously, you know, with the killing of George Floyd, all of what's happening in Kenosha where my, where my brother-in-law and sister-in-law and, and mother-in-law live um, mm-hmm. and across the country, frankly, as we've seen for months now, um, I think these are issues that we've got to talk about. And we've got to talk about in the context of national security because these are very real things. The things you describe, right, the presumptions you describe uh, remain an issue today in the national security community, um, you know, and so, but, but I do want to talk about, um, about some of the big nonproliferation issues, you know, that since, that, since we are a national security institute and this is your area of expertise, uh, having served for so long uh, in the State Department, working on these issues directly. So, you know, I want to start with Russia because, you know, Russia's been in the news a lot for uh, covert influence and, and their work in the 2016 elections and uh, their likely uh, role in the 2020 elections. Uh, but I want to talk about arms control, right? Um, and, you know, we've spent a lot of time actually trying to make common cause with Russia when it comes to arms control. They've got a tremendous amount of nuclear weapons pointed at us still today. Uh, we have the same thing still pointed at them today. Target packages might be might be modified, but, uh, but you know, at a moment's notice, the president can use the nuclear football and, and off we go to the races, uh, not in a pleasant way. Um, and, uh, you know, we obviously have a tough situation with Russia, it, regardless of what you think about the president, whether he's being soft on Russia for whatever reason, or he he's has too fond of Putin, right? Um, and whether you think that the Obama reset with Russia was a bad idea, right? And or or President Bush, frankly, seeing the Vladimir Putin's soul and seeing somebody he could work with. I mean, all you know, three presidents in a row have had some sort of you know a a, a charitable relationship with Russia, but things are not in a great place with them. Um, we've imposed stiff sanctions post 2016. Congress did um, uh, uh, through the through uh, Katza. Um, you know, the Obama administration was was fairly uh, robust with them. Uh, you know, again being pushed by Congress um, after Crimea. Um, how do our how does our relation with Russia? What impact does it have on our strategic stability and and these issues of proliferation? Uh, one thing we need to understand is we have to deal with Russia and we have to deal with these issues of nuclear weapons and we have to find a way in which we can do that. There has to be some kind of a uh, a forum, a space for us to have these discussions. Um, for example, you know we have the START treaty, which is going to be expiring soon. Uh, we need to find ways in which we can talk with Russia, yeah. regardless of other things that are going on. We have to be able to do that. Um, during the Cold War, despite all of the problems that we had, we still were able to have bilateral discussions and bilateral agreements. Right. So it's not like it can't be done. Of course, today, you know, 2020 is not what it was back in the day. So it's different type of relationships. Um, so we can't use it as a total example, but we also still have to recognize that part of our responsibility, part of the responsibility of diplomacy is to be able to talk to people who are not necessarily our best friends. Right. So we have to find a mechanism and a way to have that kind of dialogue because the nuclear weapons aren't going away uh, unless there is some discussion. We have to continue the efforts that we've been engaging in to reduce the number of nuclear weapons, to deal with strategic weapons, and it's not going to happen unless we find that that common ground to have those conversations. So so we have problems with them, but we have to be willing to figure out how do we address the issues of nuclear weapons and arms control and non-proliferation. Yeah. So you mentioned New Start, um, and you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of debate about New Start, right? I mean, I know there are a number of Republican senators who voted for it and felt like it wasn't what they thought they were getting. Um, it expires here just, you know, fairly shortly. 
Um, and, uh, you know, they, they could be, we could mutually extend, right, for five years. Um, there are three conditions the Trump administration has laid out in order to get uh, extension. Do you think it's possible that we're going to get a deal? I mean, it's very short. time is short. The election will intervene. Um, you know, our relation with Russia is fraught. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's, it's unclear whether if even if the president returns to power or, 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 or Senator Biden, Vice President Biden is elected, uh, what that'll do. So do you think there's a chance that we get New START extended? The thing is, we can do whatever we want. I mean, yeah. so the chance is always there. It's not like something is set in stone that says, you know, the opportunity is there, it's written in the, in the treaty that we can extend it. So any obstacles that exist are obstacles that we are creating to make yeah. it impossible for us to do. So we can certainly do something. I know the Russians have been interested in, in, in moving forward and they've been for a while. Uh, we've had some issues with moving forward, as you mentioned. So um, it depends on what we decide to do. Um, yeah. and the, shorter, the shorter time that's available to make something happen, obviously the more problematic it's going to be. You don't want it to expire and then try to go back and try to negotiate something again. What you want to do is just extend what, we, what we're doing now. Right. So right. Can, of course we can do it. We could have always done it. And, um, and if we... And if we send a batch of we don't have to go back to the Senate, correct? It's it's just it's already built into the treaty. It's already what they've approved. It's just the two countries have to agree, and then it gets extended. Yeah, it was written in there that that can happen very easily. And so right. what we've been doing is creating our own obstacles to make that happen. You know, right. hoping that, for example, we can bring in China for discussions, and you know, all these other things that we've been putting up as a as a as a way to do it. Um, we need to just sit down and say this is going to happen. Yeah. And find a common ground with Russia to make it happen. Yeah, so let's talk about that China piece, right? So obviously, you know, Russia's got 15 times more uh, nuclear weapons than the next competitor state, right? Besides the U.S., we have, you know, we have, we're, we're sort of, uh, have the, we and Russia have the largest number. Um, do we really need to bring China into this? And if we do or don't, right, how do we, how, if we're going to do it, how do we do, how do we make that happen, right? Obviously, we're in a very bad place with China right now. The trade war, uh, the whole COVID situation, um, you know, their behavior, they haven't made it any easier doing what they're doing in, in you know, in, in Hong Kong and South China Sea and potentially with Taiwan. Um, is there a possibility of bringing China into some sort of a three-party deal or is it better just to extend New START and then later on talk about the China thing? Or is that China thing even just a total chimera and just something we shouldn't even waste our time really thinking about? Um, I think that I have three responses to that. First of all, um, I think it's always useful to have more parties in discussions you know, I think if there's a way to bring China into a discussion about, uh, you know, nuclear weapons, new types of nuclear weapons, technology advances, I think that's a positive thing. Um, the second thing I will say is that as positive as that could be, we should not be holding up start to do it. I right. think the treaty now, we have something that is on the books that we've been working on, that we have been abiding by in terms of the, the obligations in the, in the treaty. So we shouldn't throw that out uh, waiting for something else to happen. The third thing I would say is that China has to agree to do it. And, you know, that's still an open question about what is going to happen with that. Um, right. So you can't make a country sit down and have a negotiation. So I think, you know, we should do what we need to do now, which is extend start. And, you know, if there is an interest to try to bring in China, we can do that. But I don't think we should stop start in the process to make that happen. That makes, that makes sense. And I should mention to the audience, I see a couple of questions have come in in the Q&A area. 
Uh, please feel free to put your questions in the Q&A box. We'll be taking questions uh, towards the end, but we'll also ask them along the way if there are questions that fit into, fit into the conversation. So, um, you know, one of the things, uh, obviously, the administration has been very focused on is the threat of North Korea, right, pivoting away from the Russia-China situation for a moment. Um, and at the beginning of the administration, President Trump was very uh, aggressive and, you know, called Kim Jong-un names. Um, obviously, there's a challenge right now with the, with the you know, with the, the unclear situation of succession in North Korea, if in fact Kim Jong-un is, is ill or alive or whatever it might be in his sister. Um, but sort of put that to one side, uh, the president sort of got aggressive on non-pro. Um, and, uh, and, and then, you know, I have these couple of, you know, uh, sessions. What do we think about the sort of the, the administration's approach to uh, North Korea? And is there a potential for some sort of, you know, where, where other administrations have failed? Um, nothing, no, there's nothing sort of today, but, but you think there's a possibility of it? And, and is this sort of more aggressive tone the right way to approach it? Um, I will answer that in two ways. Um, I will say that the, the beginning, well, we had the aggressiveness at first, as you say, and then the overtures where there was a potential for open discussions. We had the summits. Um, there was discussions back and forth about what could happen. Um, I think that it was, a, it was an opportunity that even the skeptics, and I was one of them, um, were hopeful that something would happen. The reason why we were skeptical is not because we don't want success. We all want success. We don't want more nuclear weapons. As a non-proliferation person, we don't want that. It was the skepticism was really about the process for how this was going forward and the lack of preparation and the lack of uh, uh, short-term discussions leading up to a summit, a real, a real plan for how it's going to happen, the recognition that this is not that easy to do, that it takes time, that um, there needed to be a plan, that there needed to be an understanding of what denuclearization means. Right. The question about whether that was understood, and you can't possibly have an agreement on denuclearization if there's not an agreement on exactly what that means. There right. questions still on open to assume that two people, uh, two leaders could just sit down and say, this is gonna happen on an issue like nuclear weapons. It just doesn't right. work. Right. Um, so, um, we were, I mean, non-proliferation folks, myself, I would say, hopeful, skeptical. Um, and now we're where we are because I think we did not take advantage of an opportunity. Um, is aggressiveness the best way to do it? I don't see how that's happening. Um, I don't know if that's, I mean, I think there was, there's an assumption that if you're aggressive, that's going to lead to results. I don't think that's shown that that's going to happen. I think what we need to do is try to get more open opportunities, but do it better next time and, yeah. be able, and really understand what, who the adversary is, come prepared to really have a discussion, understand what we're trying to do, lay out a plan, engage yeah. the government, um, the experts who know what they're doing, the diplomats who know what they're doing, uh, you know, have, have State Department involved, people who've been doing this for years, just do the whole thing differently. Right. <laughs> And one of the one of these you've suggested, though, is you know that maybe we need to figure out how to reduce sanctions and sort of come to a deal like we do with Iran, the Joint Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, um, and uh, you know p with potential snapback if the if the agreement's violated. And you know one of the things I'm interested in is obviously we're now in a situation, and and, and there's there are debates about why we're here and how we got here and why we're in a potential snapback situation. But you know we have a situation now where the U.S. has 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 
raised the issue after having pulled out of the agreement, has raised the issue the UN uh, of Iran's compliance. Uh, to be fair, I think everyone agrees that Iran is not complying. They, they would point to it and say, well, the US backed out, so why should we comply? Um, but they're not in compliance anymore. And the question of snapback has been teed up for the UN, unclear whether they'll do anything. Um, is, is the JCPOA really a good model? And, and, and what would you say to those who say, you know, the JCPOA failed and Trump was able to pull, President Trump was able to pull out of it precisely because the administration didn't go and work with Congress to get a treaty and the like in place. And that it was because it was this political agreement completely unsigned. I'm not sure why that makes a difference to me. Mm. It was um, unsigned. I mean, um, in my perspective, the reason why it failed is because the U.S. did not live up to its, its side of uh, what it was supposed to do. I mean, there could be, I mean, that's obviously one, one reason why it failed. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of perspectives out there. Um, but it's hard to say that we put ourselves in a position where we withdraw from an agreement or decide not to implement our side of an agreement when there were obviously things that were going right. Um, the way to deal with that is not to throw out the baby with the bathwater, mm-hmm. which is to try to fix it um, and try to see, you know, say there, there are ways, there are things that are working. Let's see how we can make it work better and work with our allies because we were not right. there by ourselves. We had, we had other partners you know, who are there with us. Um, I would have probably approached it a different way. Yeah. And to understand and to recognize that the JCPOA was doing what it was supposed to do and there were things that it, that were that still needed to be addressed. Not right. to say resolve the entire problem with Iran, but it was there to resolve a particular problem. And so try to address that problem while you try to address other problems. Yeah. Yeah. So, so address the breakout time and, and the like, and then and then work to address their their larger problems in the region. So, with North Korea, let's say we we, we went down your path, right? And we uh, and we were we started talking about reducing sanctions and doing some sort of a JCPOA like framework. What do you expect the North Koreans would sort of be willing? What can we expect out of them? Can we expect them to give up their weapons? Can we expect them to give up domestic enrichment? Like, what what can we realistically? Is it, are we now in a position now that we know they have sort of this capability? Are we? Theoretically, in a way, they have this capability. Is it now just a question of force size, or is it? A, can we can we really expect to denuclearize uh, the peninsula? Um, well, I think it's going to be challenging no matter what. I mean, I think there's a lot of trust issues. Um, you know, there's a lot of um, history. Um, I think if we were to do something with North Korea, you certainly want to have it like the JCPOA, where you have inspectors on the ground all right. the time. <laughs> able to go wherever they want. Um, Although some would say that was an issue with JCPOA, as you know, with the, with the, with the prior military sites, right? And the whole yeah. sort of, they take a video, we watch it from far away, you know, yeah. scenario. And you, and, you learn from, and you learn from experiences. So right. you take that and say what worked and what didn't work with the JCPOA. But having people on the ground is certainly better than where we are now. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I would, I, you know, I think that, you know, you want to, certainly have those things in place um, and, you know, and see where you can go from there. But, I, you know, right. I, th- I think it's a model, but it has to, JCPOA is a model, but it certainly has to be adjusted for the North Korea situation because it's a different region, it's different leaders, it's a different yeah. history. It's going to be challenging no matter what. And, I, you know, because the North Koreans probably don't want to get off their nuclear weapons. Yeah. One, one more question about, about sorry, go ahead. 
No, 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 I'm fine. I'm finished. What about, what, one last question on, on North Korea and the whole, the whole China dynamic, right? We talked about China a little bit earlier in the context of Russia. Um, you know, they obviously have huge influence and, 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 and role in the North Korean situation. Um, how did their own worries about the collapse of the Kim regime, uh, uh, you know, uh, play into, you know, how willing they are to sort of, you know, push North Korea on nuclear weapons and, and the like? Are they, is, is, that, is that part of their concerns that they push too hard and to try to get them to either give up or significantly limit their stockpile, that that might make the regime weaker and thereby weakening their situation on their border with South Korea. Is that, is that, is that a concern for the Chinese? Yeah, the Chinese have a number of different concerns and interests. I mean, one yeah. is they really don't want a collapsed North Korea. They also don't want the U.S. troops in South Korea. Um, they don't have a real interest in having a nuclear North Korea. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, they have to always be, I mean, their, their situation is always interesting because, you know, sometimes we ask them to push and sometimes they push. Right. Sometimes we ask them to push and they don't. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're, and a lot obviously is dependent upon their interesting situation, understanding that they have a leverage with, with North Korea, but not yeah. one they always want to use. Um, and they would love to be able to use it in a way to get what they want is to get the U.S. out of the region. <laughs> right, right. Which, by the way, the president put on the table. I mean, you know, the president's literally pulling troops out of, out of, out of Germany, you know, talking about South Korea. I mean, it is, you know, we have not seen anything like this. Um, you know, even if you accept sort of the, the Obama administration's position that, you know, all endless wars need to end, they never talked about pulling troops out of Japan or Germany or, or South Korea. And that's now on the table. And, you know, and, and if there is a reelected administration, I mean, that could be a real thing. Yeah, yeah, that could be a real thing. I mean, I, and we know that it was put on the table and it wasn't really discussed in detail beforehand. Right. Well, that's um, to yeah. your point about earlier about, you know, you can't really do these without, without prior conversations and, you know, it being, you know, mm -hmm. groundwork being laid. Exactly. The groundwork. Yes. Very important. So, so uh, you know, one of the things, Ambassador Jenkins, you know, we have the nonproliferation treaty, right? And we just, uh, we just passed the 50th anniversary uh, there are those who are skeptical of NPT and, and whether it's been effective. I mean, obviously, since NPT was put into place, Pakistan's got nuclear weapons. North Korea's got nuclear weapons. Iran is on the verge. Uh, now we hate, we're hearing rumors about Saudi Arabia, right? Uh, is, is the NPT a successful regime? What should, we be, what should we think about? Are there ways to strengthen it? You know, what, what should we think about NPT? I think the answer depends on people's perspective. I think there'll be some that will say it was successful because yes, we have new countries that have it, but there's a lot of countries that don't. There are a lot of countries that considered it and decided not to. There are countries that had it and got rid of them. Um, and, you know, so it has been successful in that respect. Um, but if you want to be skeptical, there's certainly reason to be. We still have, as you said, countries that's developed them. Uh, we still have um, countries like the U.S. and Russia that still have them and other countries that still have them. Um, so, you know, it has, I would, I would never say it has not been successful because yeah. uh, it certainly has in many respects been successful and we certainly need it and we need to continue to strengthen it and enforce it as much as we can because that's yeah. what we have. And um, yeah. so, I mean, I think, like I said, there could always be skeptics, but I also think it's been very successful. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, amongst our allies who haven't sought to acquire nuclear weapons, right, one of the reasons they've stayed away is that the U.S. has said, look, we'll be there for you. You know, you can depend on us. Right. But I think there is a perception in the world and, and it, it, it didn't it be, it's continuing in this administration, but it began even under President Obama. Right. Where where we talked about sort of withdrawing from some of the regions of the world and maybe a pivot to Asia or whatever you might want to call it. Right. And so 
certainly some of our allies in various places, our historical allies in the Middle East and, and the like, uh, have, have, have sort of been concerned that the U.S. might not be there for them, uh, whether it's because they, they, didn't, they didn't trust the prior administration, or they don't trust this administration, or both, right? Um, is that a concern for proliferation, that, that as the U.S. starts to focus more at home, and particularly in the post-COVID environment, we're certainly going to focus more at home, because we have to, um, is there a concern that that's going to cause more nations to say, well, we got to look out for ourselves, and maybe that means going to try to acquire nuclear weapons? like these allegations about the Saudis might be what's going on here. Is that, is that a concern we ought to have? Yeah, I think that's certainly a concern. I mean, I think, um, I mean, I think the level of concern will vary depending on who you talk to. I mean, there's some who will say um, Japan won't develop a nuclear weapon uh, if we pull out of that region, for example, or South Korea won't develop a nuclear weapon if they didn't feel like we had their backs. Um, but there, there are certainly reasons to at least consider it. And cause you know, it is something that could, it will change their thinking. Yeah. It will adjust anyone's thinking who have been relying on the U.S. Uh, to help them feel protected against an adversary or another country that may have a nuclear weapon. Yeah. So really it's, it's worth considering. And those who are thinking about these issues do factor that in at all times. Yeah. You just don't know. And the fact that you don't know is a reason to think about what would happen if we did. Right. I have a number of questions for the audience. I want to go to those. I have just one more question before I go to the audience questions. And that was, you know, a lot of in, in this in this sort of area about what our allies might do and what others might do. You know, we've, we've had this very successful effort to try and give uh, other nations civilian nuclear power through what are called one, two, three agreements. Right. Um, and one of those a core part of that is sort of this, this deal that we, we negotiate with the Emirates, who just announced their peace deal with with Israel. Um, and, and that's what was called the gold standard, right? This idea that you will, you will agree to forego domestic enrichment of uranium um, and, and not acquire plutonium if we'll give you access to uh, low enriched uranium to, to fuel a civilian reactor program. Um, it began, you know, back in the day with the Adams for Peace program. Um, and so what I wonder is, you know, should we be worried that that gold standard situation is sort of weakened, you know, post JCPOA with, with Iran being permitted, even under the JCPOA, to conduct its own enrichment at some level. And maybe that was sort of a fait accompli. They already had it. They weren't going to give it up. Uh, the North Koreans have the same problem, right? I mean, if the Trump administration does do a deal with them, again, admittedly, not clear they can, but if they did, it's hard to know whether it would include giving up enrichment. It's hard to imagine that happening. Um, are we worried the gold standard was sort of like a one-time deal and it's, 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 we're never going to return to it? Um, well, I think there's a lot of value in, in the gold standard. So yeah. I would hope that, um, that, you know, what's happening doesn't necessarily totally destroy it. I think there still is a value in the idea of, you know, providing low uranium, and low, I mean, low enrichment um, for obvious reasons. So whether it will, um, I mean, like all of these questions, possibly, but I think we need to do, as a country, we need to do what we can to try to keep it going for opportunities. Right. No, I think that's right. So one of our guests asks, um, you know, we seem to have a degrading relationship with uh, all of our adversaries, the big ones, China, North Korea, Russia, Iran, uh, and that they seem to be emboldened by, uh, by the current administration, uh, the current racial tensions in the United States. We saw uh, the Chinese sort of infamously from the podium at the foreign, at the foreign ministry saying, you know, being so concerned about the plight of black Americans, Right, of course, they're they're interning a million Muslims in, in Xinjiang, so whatever. It's hard to hard to imagine they're they're really that concerned. Uh, but what can we what can we do to reestablish um, uh, the perception amongst our particularly our, these four major adversaries that testing the U.S. could be a mistake and could be folly? Right? Do we think that there's anything we can do to sort of reestablish in some sense deterrence? 
Um, well, it depends. I mean, I mean, we have been living under the uh, guise of deterrence uh, for many years, um, even though we've had many, many problems here. Um, and I, I think we need to, um, I mean, it's not as if, I mean, like you're saying, what the Chinese is saying, considering their own situation, you know, I mean, you know, you can't, you know, you, you can't throw stones if you live in a glass house, right? So, right. I mean, you know, they're not in a position to do that. But at the same time, you know, we are also being a lot more exposed, you know, more than we have been. We've been living under a pretense that things are a lot better than a lot of us know they really always have been. Right. So I think we need to with we need to decide what do we want our per, our perception of the U.S. to be. You know, do we want to be dealing with these issues? To be honest with the fact that we have these problems and that we yeah. can go on country if we actually address them, or do we want to just go back and say, oh, we're we're just as strong as we always have been? Just forget all the stuff that's going on. You know, I mean, I, I think it's a time of reckoning for us to really think about. Right. What right. do we want to be? How do we want to be perceived? Right. And, and can we live to ideals that we've set for ourselves back in the Declaration of Independence? I, I think everyone can agree we did. We we have not yet lived up to those. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 So Paul Rosenzweig, uh, one of our uh, NSI advisory board members, um, asks. Uh, What's your recommendation uh, for the first steps to be taken by the next administration, whether it's a reelect or, or a Biden administration, uh, to reestablish deterrence? Is it, is it possible to do that? And, and if so, what would you say, like the one or two things you might do in the first administration, in the next administration, uh, to make that happen? Um, you know, I would I would go back and um, probably do a reevaluation of our our deterrence theory. Mm. Um, and look at it and really uh, understand what changes and what challenges we have now. Some, mm. Based on what you were saying about the perception, um, a lot of it deals with where we are now with our nuclear weapons, our relationship right. with our allies, our relationship with Russia. Um, I wouldn't go out and just start saying this is it. I would just start to reevaluate and really get an assessment of where we are before we go out and go forward. If the terrorist theory is very important. But I think we need to do an assessment of where we are with these things right now. Yeah. You know? One of our other guests asked about cyber weapons. And, and if you don't, if, if, if we don't tell us how it's fine, but um, uh, they're asking whether, whether it's, it's possible to use forensics to figure out, you know, who's behind some of these cyber attacks and then go after them in a court of law. Is that, is that something we should even be, is that even a thing, right, going after foreign nations? I mean, we know that the Justice Department recently has indicted Chinese military officers, um, has indicted Russians. Uh, in the case of the uh, the 2016 elections, I, we don't really see these folks, though, you know, being brought into U.S. courts. Is that is that an effective way to pursue this thing, and or is there some messaging component that, that really is, is is valuable here? Um, you know, we're probably not at that point yet. I think it would be good to be able to find a way to retaliate, find a way to punish. Mm. Um, but in many ways, you know, and I'm not a cyber expert, so I say this with that with that caveat because I'm sure. sure wanting to know a lot more about cyber than I do. Um, but for me, the cyber field is still in many ways its infancy mm. and figuring out how to deal with some of these challenges and some of these threats, are still, we're still figuring that out. And many ways, until we have a better assessment of that, it's going to be difficult to figure out how we, how we bring people to a court of law. Right. 
know, that makes sense. What are the international rules and regulations about the way in which this is supposed things are supposed to happen? You know, what is the yeah. international law on this? Um, is there a behavior out there that we're regulating? Um, you know, we know things are bad. We know what Russia did is bad. We know that. We know that things that North Korea has done is bad. Um, but how are we going to actually punish? How are we going to regulate it? Those things, in my perception, have still have not really been decided. Yeah. Um, so, uh, sorry, go ahead. If there was a way to bring Russia to a court of law, if there was a court of law that existed right. to do that. I mean, right. there's a court of justice, of course, which the U.S. is not a particular fan of. Right. But you know, if there is a is a if there is a place, if we can create a place, if there is an international agreement to do something like that. Yeah. Well, yeah, and we signed the Rome Statute, but obviously we've never ratified the 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 um, the, the like. And so, um, you know, uh, so we have two we have two more questions on on non pro, and then and then I do want to pivot to the to these issues of diversity that are that are affecting our nation, and we have a question already on that also. So, um, Rizwan Lada, one of our visiting fellows, um, asks about uh, about again about South Korean U.S. relations, um, and and is concerned that the the administration's rhetoric uh, may have damaged our relations with with the Republic of Korea over the long run. But what he wants to know is, you know, whether President Trump gets reelected or Joe Biden, Vice President Biden takes the oath of office in January, what can the U.S. do to maintain and strengthen this extended deterrence posture, sort of the, the, the extension of our umbrella in some sense uh, to East Asia? Is that, is, that, is that forever shot now that we've talked about, we've, we've sort of floated the idea of, of pulling troops out of South Korea and Japan? I don't think anything is forever. Is forever. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's just a matter of, um, deciding that we want to have a, to reestablish our relationships in whatever way we want to do it. Um, you know, there's no, there's, there's not, there's nothing out there that's saying it can't be done. I mean, everything is, everything about diplomacy, everything about foreign relations is not everything. I don't like to say everything or anything, but so much of it is about our, our approach, our policies, our decision-making, our way in which we want to engage. And if there was a, a decision by the administration, whichever administration, that we wanted to go back and reestablish, um, reaffirm, whatever the word is, um, we can do that. You know, it's not as if anything that we've done cannot be fixed. Um, of course, if we think if, if something is so damaged, the other side may not want to. Right. Um, and that's just a matter of how much can we, what can we do to fix that problem? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we're there yet. Gotcha. Well, that, that, is, that is good to hear. Uh, Stephen Jackson, one of my former students, uh, asked about uh, how the U.S. should respond to allegations that the Wagner Group, these Russian mercenaries, right, uh, deployed chemical weapons in Libya. Um, and how should that affect our relations with Russia uh, going forward? We've obviously heard about the stuff in Afghanistan, the bounties and the like. Um, all that sort of been, all the stories broke and really hasn't appeared to have a huge impact on the president's fondness for Vladimir Putin. Um, and Congress hasn't really stepped up to, you know, like they did with, 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 um, with either Crimea or, or frankly, 2016 elections. So, how should we be thinking about that? And, and if there's if there's a new administration, should they be imposing some sort of uh, penalties on Russia for this this Wagner group involved in chemical weapons uh, and and the and the Afghanistan bounties allegedly? Yeah, what should we be doing? We should definitely be a lot a uh, lot more a lot harder on Russia. Um, I mean, the stuff that we heard about in Afghanistan, all of this, we should not be giving them a pass on any right. of it. Um, because these are things that are, you know, you know, the threats to our troops, the, you know, you know, what all, I mean, all of that is just a whole other category that we should not be dealing with. 
but you know all of these actions that are pushing the envelope in terms of what the U.S. will tolerate, um, right. what the U.S. will put up with, and not being pushed back um, is not is not really good in terms of our relationship and in, in terms of our perception yeah. by the countries, our perception internally and externally, um, and we need to push back. Um, yeah. We have. To, I mean. We're not really doing that. Um, we're not really setting any kind of standard for what is it that we're not going to be putting up with in the world. Yeah. So it's been, it's been great, a great conversation. I really I do want to pivot to sort of the, the events that are taking place in our country. I know we talked about them at the top uh, for a little bit, uh, particularly in your own experience as you as you as you grew up through the national security community. Um, but you know, there are these these events that have taken place, like the killing of George Floyd, um, you know, Ahmed Arbery, Breonna. Uh, Taylor and the like, um, these obviously have deep roots, right? And not just in our founding generation, but also, you know, people like to say, you know, people like to talk about, well, you know, these are hundreds of years ago, right? But the truth is that we've had legally enforced, you know, racism in our country through the 1960s, right? Um, and they were in our laws. We had separate but equal, um, and there were separate fountains and, and, and places of business and the like. Um, you've been working on this issue for years, um, and you've, you've said that that having more diverse voices in the national security field is gonna be really important, right? Particularly in these hard security issues, hard security issues like the ones you worked on, right? Nuclear proliferation and the like. Um, what, why, why do you think it's so difficult uh, for people of color and particularly women of color to break into this field? Is it, is it just sort of that the old saw of male dominance? Is, it, is there something else going on here? Um, and, and what can we do to address that issue? Is it just a matter of getting folks like you uh, to be to, to be role models and mentors, or is there something more we can be doing more proactively? Um, well, a couple, a couple of things to start out with. First of all, I mean, this is an issue, this is a systemic issue that's been around way before the 60s. I mean, this is just our culture. And our culture, I mean, racism is a part of our culture. And um, so it's something that has been part of us from the beginning. Um, and we need we need diverse voices in all in all fields, not just national security. We need them in all our facts of facts all parts of life in America because America is diverse. Um, the national security field is um, has has a lot of issues in terms of diversity. Um, I think that it may be because I mean I think there's a lot of reasons. One, um, it's not it's not always the most welcoming field for diverse voices. I think that it has been so um, for so long predominantly within the hands of um, the dominant culture that is very resistant to diverse views. There's a perception of we know what's best for the country um, because we have been the most educated, the most privileged, we know what's best I think it permeates overall thinking in the field. Um, I think there's a myth that one has to have particular credentials to be in some of these fields. Um, you know, it's very much like in my area, nuclear weapons. There's mm -hmm. this, you know, you're not a nuclear scientist. You're not a nuclear physicist. You're not a you know chemical engineer. I mean, I'm a lawyer. Mm -hmm. I'm not a scientist. I'm a lawyer. I got a law degree. I got a math. I got a PhD in international relations. But I've been in this field since the early '90s. Right. There's a lot of people in this field who are not scientists. God knows we need the scientists because we did. That's the basis of a lot of of the work. But there's a feeling that I don't have the right degrees 
to get into it. And as a perpetuation of that feeling, I think because there's a desire to keep it very much within the hands of a small group. Right. There's a lack of mentors and there's a lack of role models. If you don't have a lot of people of color in the field, a lot of women in the field, there aren't other people who are like, you've done it all right, and I can do it. Yeah. And finally, a last thing I will say is you, there's not enough engagement of people early on. I got yeah. in the field after I graduated law school and my master's program came down to D.C. That's when I got into the field. Right. And, um, so we need to get to younger people, um, get to them at an earlier age to get them into these fields so that they are they appreciative. Yeah. So you've also also often talked about this sort of this barrier of thought that differentiates between domestic relations on one hand, international issues on the other, uh, and that 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 might particularly affect people of color um, uh, having to choose between sort of domestic issues and international issues. Can you explain what you mean by that barrier of thought and and why? Uh, people of color might face unique or systemic pressures to focus on domestic issues instead of international issues? Um, well, I think that, I think it's a very natural thing because there are so many, I think as a, as a, as a whole, not just people of color, I think as a, as a whole, we have a distinction of between domestic and international, which I don't think is mm -hmm. nowadays and increasingly less true in the future. Um, so there's always been this kind of a, you know, U.S., we got it together. We're, we're the greatest country in the world. We got this. So we'll do it other things elsewhere because that's where a lot of the problems are. Right. Um, um, particularly, you know, in some parts of the world. Um, so we always had that. But I think if you're, if you're a, a, a person of color, you have a lot of other things that's going on to worry about. Um, particularly since the government and our culture doesn't really address those issues. And so they just mm. So when you're growing up and you have to worry about police brutality and you have to worry about health issues and you have to worry about, you know, um, housing issues and all the things that come with, you know, not for all people of color, but for a lot of people of color, you have to deal with those things. That's, your yeah. That's what you're thinking about. You're not thinking about these other things. And so you're naturally going to think about those kind of issues, particularly if you don't have somebody coming in and saying, well, you know, these issues you're dealing with are not just domestic. These things are happening in other parts of the world. Right. Getting appreciation early on in life to understand those connections. And so since you don't have that, when you do get it, it's like, wow, I see that there are connections between the problems we're having here and the problems that are going on in other parts of the world. So you have, but, but then once that happens, you have a much better appreciation because you have seen it. You know, right. for, did not grow in those environments, grow up in those environments, who grew up in a privileged environment, they didn't see these things. So they have a less understanding of the connections between, you know, the food security issues, the health issues that you have to deal with here and other parts of the world. So you have a much better perception and perspective of these issues that are not being input into decision makings about foreign policy. Right. Right. From the community is missing out on these perspectives that can enrich what we're doing overseas because yeah. you have people who are there saying we know better than everybody, but you really don't because you don't have these other perspectives that will right. ensure that your policies may be successful in these other countries. Right. I want to I want to sort of dive into a little bit of one of the points you just made, which is this idea that there is a that there's a relationship between these domestic issues and the international issues, and one of our one of our uh, 
our visiting fellows, Harold Moss, asks about uh, the impact that racial tensions have globally, right? Um, how are our adversaries, in your mind, exploiting this? Uh, and what should we expect going forward when it comes to the situation we have here at home and how that affects us in the international community? Um, you mean exploiting the fact that we're having these issues now? Yes, exactly right, exactly. Um, well, I think the, the, the way that people, I mean, the way that this could be exploited is to, um, to just make the, the problems that much worse. You know, if you're, right. you're Russia and you want to interfere in our elections. Like they did in 2016. Yeah, it's perfect. It's like, what, you know, we couldn't, I mean, and, and we couldn't ask for a better situation. Right. Like this racial issue, and they knew it back. I mean, they've always known it. They, right. you know, they know politics, you know, very well. So, um, yeah, they knew they could do it in 2016, and now it's like we're giving it to them in a silver platter. Right. And so, and anyone else who wants to exploit, I mean, division is 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 if you want to divide, and it's already divided, <laughs> makes it easy. If you already have division, right? You no, know, right. and, and that that weakens a country that kind of internal division like a family internal division weakens the entire family internal divisions weakens the united states so it's not in our interest to have these kind of divisions right now i think that, that makes a lot of sense and, and you know one of the things that uh that uh was raised uh with us early on was uh when when, when these events started happening and the and the the killing of george floyd happened um was that uh you know what we do in this country can have an impact on how we're perceived and our ability to sort of move our allies and actually move our opponents overseas. Do you agree that that sort of the way we handle our domestic affairs has a significant impact? Because I was, I'll be candid with you, early on, I was skeptical whether NSI's institutions should speak out on these issues or, or you know, I, I sort of was with you, well, these are national security issues. These are domestic issues. I, I, I sort of had that sort of, there's a, there's a clean line between the two. And I was convinced by people like Carol Moss that in fact, that's wrong. What, what, help me understand what your thought is on how, what impact the way we handle our business at home has on the way that we can effectuate our own goals and, and, and interests overseas. Um, I think for a very long time, you know, the U, I mean, like I said, these issues of racism have been with us, you know, since the beginning. And for a long time, we have been able to push them under the rug and say, we're the greatest country on earth. We can be the greatest economy, the greatest military. And that's fine. Um, but, you know, when we have been exposed the way we have, in a, in, a diff, in a different way than in the 60s, because we have so many more outlets to be exposed. Right. And, and there's so much more, there's so, the, 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 the amount of protests, the people who are protesting, the diversity of protests, the effect that it's having around the world, um, has has really, I think, um, created a situation where we have to deal with this in a way we never had to deal with before. Um, particularly since you have a lot of young people who are in in the mix. So um, a lot depends on how the administration wants to handle it. I think mm. administration doesn't see this division as a weakness. Um, I think this administration see division as a way to be strong um, and to get what they want. But I think that's kind of short-sighted. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, we'll have to see how well we are able to put it under the rug. We have two options. We can either say we're going to put it under the rug and say, we're still great. 
We're still wonderful. Come work with us. And that might work. Or we can say, um, we have some real issues to deal with. Let's, can, let's, let's, re in, let's reinforce our relationships that we have damaged with our allies the last few years. At the same time, we also try to deal with our internal issues and be upfront and real about them. Yeah. Does that mean if we are, if we are willing to show our, weakness, our problems, does that mean that we are actually a weaker nation or yeah. does it mean we're a stronger nation? Yeah. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Let's talk about that last point. For the last for all the last few years, we've dealt with it like, it's okay, we're fine, we're good, you know, we're still strong, don't worry about that stuff. Right. Um, but I don't know. Does that still work that I don't know. Yeah. There are people who perceive, though, that if we admit that we have problems or that we haven't done right by people in this country or that we didn't live up to our family ideals, that somehow makes us less great or 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 we're not able to be that world leader uh, can we still be a great country and a world leader uh while admitting that we have our own flaws and, and that we need to correct those things and, and be better i think that depends on the personality of the person you're talking to now there are those who think that who person because a lot of times people what they say is based on their own perceptions and their own beliefs mm -hmm. So I'm a person, for example, who says, I can still be strong and it's okay if you know I'm not a perfect person. You know, and there is certain strength in recognizing that it's okay if you know I'm not great, but that doesn't mean that I as a whole am a weak person. There are those who feel the opposite. That no, you can't know anything is wrong and that's what we've been doing. It's okay because we're still, um, uh, a great person. So that's what I'm saying. How we deal with this will depends on how we want to how we want to deal with that in the future. So right. we can hide it all, and we can't really hide it anymore. But we can say, you know, we're regardless of this, we are. So we can always say, regardless of this, we're strong. It's just how do how do you deal with that? Because it's, these issues are not going away. Right. We deal with these issues. Period. Right. So there's no dichotomy between yeah. being a strong country and being a world leader and admitting that we have flaws. I mean, there are people who perceive that that's, that you can't, you just that's can't totally, do that. I totally understand why that's, I mean, it, and it freaks them out with the thought that we would actually be honest. But the thing is, it's out there. And so- right, We can't you, hide from it anymore, as you said. Do you admit it or do you just pretend it's not there and go forward like we have been doing for years? Right. The question is, are we in the same position we were before George Floyd? Right. Are we in the same position we were four or five years ago when we didn't have the division that is so obvious now because it's not like racism just started. It's not right. like you know, discrimination started. It was always here. Right. Now it's a lot more out front because we have, you know, and it, it, I hate to say it, but we have an administration that doesn't mind it coming out in the open. So the question now is, well, now that it's out in the open and now that we had George Floyd and now everybody can see what we've been able to hide for so long, because we had Americans who didn't think that we had these problems. So it's not just every other people, other people outside, it's, it's us. So we're, a lot of people are waking up to things that, you know, people of color have known have been in this country for years. So now the question is, well, now the genie's out of the bottle in a way it hasn't been before. Do we right. just, we don't have any problems and go forward? Do we be honest and say, yeah, we have problems, but we're gonna deal with them? It's, you know, it's in, and whether that's going to make you strong or not strong depends on the perception of the leader and how, we, it's about how you deal with it. 
Yeah. We only have about four more minutes, and, I, and we see we have, we have another question from the audience, again, from Harold Moss, um, who really has, has, has taught me a lot about, about the issues that we face. Um, What's <laughs> that? We should have a conversation about this. Oh, no, absolutely. We, 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 did, we did a great session internally to NSI uh, with Harold and Harry, uh, as the, Harry Wingo, as these events, as these events took place. Um, Harold asks, uh, you know, whether uh, you know, we no longer teach really social studies and world history in many U.S. schools, or at least not the way we used to, right? I, mean, I don't know if it's every generation sort of feels like, Kids nowadays have it different, right? Maybe we're all just getting older. But, uh, you know, he says, he, he raises the point that, you know, we have a younger population who are unfamiliar about how we got to where we are. Um, and how concerned are you with the, with the fact that the younger generation lacks sort of fundamental world history and a realistic view of world history? And I'll add a little bit on top of that. You know, a lot of people, including a uh, number of Supreme Court justices have talked about, both Justice Sotomayor and Justice Gorsuch, have talked about the lack of sort of real civics education, right? And what it means to be an American and be candid about who we are and the challenge we had growing up and what we could do about it going forward. Do you, what do you, do you worry about that? I wish we were a lot more candid. I can't tell you the difference in, I mean, I'm like you said, I don't know what they're learning is in schools today, you know, but um, you know, I, when I was in college, I, I double majored and one of my majors was black studies. And so I learned a lot about black history by majoring in that. Um, but growing up, I didn't learn. A lot. I mean, I, I didn't learn a lot of the stuff that I learned. I mean, I knew stuff. I mean, I knew a lot about, you know, things that I pretty much learned on a lot of my own. <laughs> um, but history is so important and history of America and not a skewed history, but let's be open and real and honest about this stuff so that people don't go through all of their lives thinking that the country is one way and then finding out in 2020 that it really isn't or being able to easily pretend it's not because, well, you know, I didn't learn that, or, okay, you know, let's just kind of go oblivious through the world and right. thinking things are a certain way. You know, if you grow up in your, in your, a, a black or brown person, you have a different perception of America. You just do, because your experience is, is very different from people who are not, who are not a person of color. Right. So we are just aware of a lot more things, but th that shouldn't be just us. Every sh people should understand that, um, not that they can never really relate because you can't relate to something that are totally to something else. Right. But you learn and, and understand. So I don't like I said I don't know teaching now. It'd be nice if they were bringing more civic information, more history of America, of all of America, the good and the bad. Right. Well, Ambassador, this has been a great conversation. Thank you for taking the time. I'm honored to have you with us. Um, I want to remind the audience uh, that we do have an event coming up. We've decided to go because everyone's zoomed out. We're going to go instead of doing this every two weeks. We're going to go once a month. Our next event will be on Thursday, October 1st at 5 p.m. Eastern with the former Secretary of the Air Force, Dr. Heather Wilson. Uh, but Ambassador Jenkins, it was great to have you here today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for all the leadership you show and the work that WCAPS is doing. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.